Cell is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We currently have a busy event schedule and will be attending many conferences in the next few months and many of the regional study days. For a full list of where to meet us, please do get in touch. As well as our event schedule, we also have a busy product portfolio that has recently been updated to. This includes Sky Factory for state-of-the-art visual LED lighting. We have MyQA Ion and Ion RT from IBA for automated patient-specific QA for photon, electron and proton radiotherapy. And we also have MR Box from our AI suppliers at Therapanacea, allowing AI-powered MR-only workflows for a more consistent and high-quality planning pathway. For SGRT, we have a vast range of open-faced thermoplastic masks, as well as surface-guided compatible clear bolus from ClearSight, preventing any risk of interference between the skin surface and your SGRT solution. And as always, do not hesitate to get in touch to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable team. Our account and clinical specialists are from a radiotherapy and physics background, and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 97. My name is Naman Joka Anderson and I'm joined by fellow host Joe McNamara. Hi everyone. A big thank you to our last guest, Laura Allington, who talks about her role as the lead of the UCLH Proton Beam Therapy Centre. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're very pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Joanne Collins, and she will be discussing her role as the lead supportive care pharmacist. Hi Joe, how are you? Hi, good evening. Thank you for having me. I'm good, thank you. How are you both? Yeah, well, good, thank you. Nice to have you on. Um, mm-hmm. Would you mind by telling us a bit about your current role and how you got there? Yeah, so um, I've been a pharmacist for nearly 20 years and um, I started off in general medicine as a rotational pharmacist and then I did that job for three years, did my postgrad diploma, then I moved on to working in medicines information which was a really good opportunity a large teaching hospital so it meant being put on the spot and being asked questions about anything meds related from members of the public through to you know members of the clinical team all different specialities so that was a real steep learning curve um and then after that I went into primary care and didn't last very long I just didn't it, it wasn't for me so then I moved on to the Christie so um, I've been at the Christie for 13 years now so my job originally was specialising in palliative care and colorectal cancer and recently I've moved into supportive care so essentially our palliative care team changed its name several years ago to be called the supportive care team just to recognise the fact that we see patients at any stage of the cancer journey and you know the earlier they get referred to us the better um, and I guess it's just taken off from there, really recognising there's a huge number of drugs that we can use. Um, obviously, risk management, meds optimization is really important. And there's lots of projects to do as well. So it's a busy job. Um, do probably two or three clinical sessions a week and work for the gynae oncology team as well. So that's where the supportive oncology side comes in. So it's quite nice having a foot in both camps, so to speak. I don't think that's, I think that's quite unique, really, in terms of my role to have that oncology clinic um experience firsthand but also to have that supportive palliative care um core work as well so it's um, a really varied job it's busier than i thought it would ever be and um the nice thing is as well i've got a couple of colleagues who are also going to specialize in the area so i have got some support so i can get on with more non-clinical work and they can also carry out projects too so so yeah it's exciting i think there's lots of opportunities and um 
hopefully other centres might follow suit at some point in the future. Can I ask Jo, what made you want to become a pharmacist? So I didn't want to be a pharmacist, I was originally going to do, I think I had a place at Sheffield to do, you know, Leeds to do um, physiology. Yeah, I'm going back a while now and then I just happened to get better grades at my A-levels and I just met met someone on A-level day and they said, oh, you know, you could be a pharmacist, maybe you should come and do um, pharmacy at Manchester with me. And I was like, all right. So um, I just managed to get through clearing, which is quite unusual, I think. So I just found myself not really knowing what to expect. And it was a massive leap because it was very, um, I guess, physics side was something I hadn't done before. I dropped physics as soon as I could do at A-level, at GCSE. Um, and the chemistry was quite intense as well. So that first year was very much a, I'm not sure if I'm going to stick with this. It's not what I thought because I just thought I'd end up working in boots um, or, you know, high street chemists. I didn't really realise pharmacists could work in hospitals, that they worked in industry. It just wasn't something that was promoted. And I think a lot of the public and other healthcare professionals as well just see pharmacists in the dispensary, counting tablets or maybe ringing the doctor just to, you know, query prescriptions. So it was quite eye-opening really once I got to my second year and it became more clinical it was actually, you know, I realised then that that was the, the job for me. So it was quite lucky, really, that, um, yeah, I guess I would have done it if I hadn't met that person on A-level results day. So, yeah, quite maybe an unusual route, really, because I think a lot of people go into pharmacy either as a substitute for maybe medicine um, or, you know, it's just something they've always wanted to do and they've got that vocation. Can I ask, so as a pharmacist... What is the normal procedure for making sure you dispense a drug safely? So I'm sure patients have been to a pharmacy or even in clinic and I always get the question of why is it taking so long? Why can't you just get it off the shelf? Yeah, so it's more complex. I think a lot a lot of the time there's obviously time pressure because there's such demand on the service. Um, I guess most patients who will come to a cancer hospital will get a prescription. I think we're one of those frontline services that people don't always realise but we'll often be involved with a patient, whether we're dispensing oncology medicines um, or supportive medicines. So we do see at some point most patients who come through our doors. And I think at the Christie, we probably have about 40,000 outpatients a year. So it's a huge number of patients. The other thing is um, when we're checking a prescription, we're obviously looking at whether it's the right drug for the patient. So we'll be looking at the clinical record, you know, why they prescribe morphine. Is it the right dose for the patient's age? We're checking the kidney function to make sure they'll excrete it without side effects. We're looking at allergies as well. And sometimes we just don't have a stock. And that's something we see more and more commonly now that we don't have drugs available that we, you know, we should do that are quite, you know, quite common drugs that we shouldn't be running out of. And that's um, another story altogether. So there's all these different checks going on. And with chemotherapy, um, for example, oral anti-cancer medicines that patients will go to pharmacies to collect, we've got to do much more stringent checks. So we'll be looking at, you know, funding as well for the high cost drugs, um, you know, obviously having to check databases. So it is quite a time consuming task. It's very specialist. You have to go through a lot of training to be able to sign off um, prescriptions in that environment. So I think for patients, it is quite frustrating because they just think, well, yeah, it's just the tablet surely on the, on the shelf. But there's lots of different processes to go through. Um, and obviously, it's got to get second checked as well. We can't screen and then check a medicine. So we have to get somebody else to check it's all been dispensed correctly. So there's different pe- several different people involved, um, you know, in the dispensing process. And we do rely on um, computer systems as well. We have robotic dispensing. So again, if they go down, that also can be a problem. But yeah, there's lots of, lots of checks. And that clinical check is really, really important. And... You know, I prescribe as well, so I sort of see it from both sides. 
Joe, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but you mentioned around the funding. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking about kind of the patients that sometimes contact us on Rad yeah. Chat, you know, asking about drug trials and how can they find out what what trials there are and, you know, their friend in so-and-so area has been given a specific drug. Why is it not that they can access it? Can you just talk us through kind of the process and what what kind of the procedures are for the clinicians and obviously from a pharmacist perspective um, that has to happen before anyone can even have a specific drug? Yep, so we have treatment protocols and obviously we'll have our standard of care, which NHS England will typically dictate. So obviously we're following the trials, but also NHS England will commission drugs or certain regimens like combinations of drugs. And they obviously have to go through our drugs and therapeutics committee. So we have to sort of, we have to take an application through that committee to show that, you know, we've got the fun, you know, we've got the funding arrangements in place. Um, we've got a protocol, so we have to write protocols before we can prescribe drugs that all clinicians have to refer to, which will sort of tell you what the indications are, you know, why is this drug prescribed? Does the patient fit the criteria for treatment? Do they need a, you know, can they have the full dose? Do they need a dose reduction? What, how do you manage the side effects? That all takes time to sort out as, as well as setting up the prescriptions. Then in terms of funding, we can make the applications if that all gets approved through DTC. Um, we then make applications to NHS England through a system called Blue Tech or the Cancer Drug Fund, which you may well have heard about. Heard about. So it just allows access to drugs which are very expensive. They might cost several thousand pounds per month or per cycle of treatment. Um, so it's just ma- making sure that we have those pathways and that you know that, that we do follow those where possible for the majority of patients, so that they're getting that you know that gold standard of treatment. Also, there's clinical trials as well. So clinical trials, compassionate schemes might be available depending on the type of cancer and the setting that the patient's being treated in. But again, there's lots of information on the internet. So I think it's really important to look at those resources you know, as, as to whether they're reputable and think if patients have any questions about the cancer treatment, the best person to speak to is obviously the medical team or you know, speak to their specialist nurse, clinical nurse specialist as well. They'll be able to signpost or you know refer refer the patients to the appropriate person. Um, but obviously, cancer centres like the Christie have a huge number of trials going on at any one time. But we don't offer trials for every you know every cancer or every indication. So sometimes patients might need to you know to go to other centres for second opinions. Um, so it's quite it's very com- it's really complex. Um, the, you know, trying to navigate that funding system. But I suppose the role of the oncology pharmacist would be to um, try and get those pathways streamlined. And make sure patients can access the drug as soon as it's you know feasible. So there is a lot of work going on in the background, and patients often will ring because they're frustrated and think, you know, why can't I have this drug? But you know, we have patient information leaflets to write as well. And sometimes we don't get very much notice. It'll just be a case that we'll get an email saying this is commissioned now, and then obviously patients want to know because we'll hear through charities or through word of mouth that a drug's available. So we have to be really reactive, but also we have to horizon scan as well and try and make sure that. We, we know what drugs are going to get commissioned and, you know, when that's likely to happen. So it's a bit of a, a waiting game, but also, um, you know, just being ready to go as soon as we think something's going to get commissioned. Jo, you mentioned how you prescribe and support patients. Um, you know, how is that different to maybe other pharmacists working, say, in Boots? You know, you know that that very um, specialist role within oncology, how does that differ? 
So I suppose um, the training that we get is so specialist, we can only dispense anti-cancer medicines through our pharmacy at the Christie. So typically anti-cancer medicines aren't available through pharmacies in the high, on the high street or the community pharmacy. So we have to know um, all the details about the drug and whether the patient's you know, eligible for treatment. We have to know the side effects really well. We have to know the red flags, you know, when to escalate, because obviously we work within a protocol but that protocol will cover the typical scenarios that we might see in clinic but then obviously patients are on other medications which interact um you know they have other acute medical conditions or long-term conditions that need managing as well and sometimes they can't get to their gp so you have to have an awareness of a lot of the common clinical conditions like diabetes for example and ckd um but very much we are very focused on getting patients through their treatment safely and making sure that if we're not happy with the pet, you know, if we feel any concern at all about the patient, then we can refer the patient back to the medical oncology team or the clinic team and, you know, look at whether we need to take any further action. So it's just about knowing, you know, how we fit into that pathway and what our scope of practice is. Um, so just thinking like in terms of gynaclinic, for example, the drugs that we tend to use are a group of drugs called the PARP inhibitors, which we can use in first line, second, third line setting. So we have drugs called laparib, recaparib and niraparib, which, um, and we sometimes use laparib with avastin for eligible patients. So we'll see the patient at set cycles, which is defined within the protocol, and we'll go through the toxicity of treatment with them, um, you know, check the monitoring the blood pressure where it's indicated, check the bloods, um, check for any new medications the patient might have started, and just essentially um, signpost them as well. So it's just having that specialist knowledge and those contacts is really important and knowing that we've got colleagues within the trust that we can refer to or even maybe outside the trust as well. So we do have, you know, specialist clinics like um, peripheral neuropathy clinics where we can refer to patients who've had issues with chemotherapy that have damaged, you know, that have damaged their nerves, they've got ongoing pain. So that's something that farms in the community wouldn't have access to, but it's really important that they do know about these drugs to some degree or at least appreciate when patients are on anti-cancer drugs because more and more patients are on oral medications and they're becoming a chronic long-term therapy because obviously cancer is changing the way we treat with disease is changing patients are living longer with cancer and we're treating frailer patients as well so these patients are going to go into the high street pharmacy to see the local pharmacist with all sorts of queries and it's really important that they appreciate um you know the, i guess the scope of these drugs and what they're for and can manage any sort of general inquiries and know how to refer back so i think groups organizations like BOPA, which is the british oncology um pharmacy association they're trying to do some work with community pharmacies to educate them about all the sat which is systemic anti-cancer treatment and just give them the confidence to you know manage patients and just understand you know why these drugs might be used and what the common concerns might be for patients who are being you know managed in the community so there are definite distinctions between the roles. So community pharmacists will be very general, very, obviously we, we work holistically as well, but they won't have the same network of support that we do. And also, I guess their knowledge will be very different. Like I wouldn't know very much about a lot of the over-the-counter over medicines and, you know, some of the more general disease states that we don't tend to manage in the hospital. But yeah, we do have very distinct, distinct roles really, but there will be some degree of crossover. And it's good to build those links and, you know, try and get to get to know community pharmacists in the area and also try and find out what they need because yeah they're going to they're see more and more patients on these drugs as time goes on so you mentioned about over-the-counter medication so something i was taught by a prescriber a while ago is 
um, you know, if I'm not a non-medical prescriber, I shouldn't be advising patients to get paracetamol or, you know, use pain medication, for example, if it's not prescribed. Mm -hmm. So there's a few legal issues here, but obviously you can go to a pharmacy and buy cocodamol over the counter or loperamide. Yeah. So where, where do we stand as healthcare practitioners? So I haven't finished my NMP yet, nearly there, but should I be advising patients about over-the-counter pain medication and things like that? I think I think within reason, if you know the patient well and you know you know, you know their history and what they've responded to before, because if a patient's just going to go to the pharmacy anyway, then you know it's up to the pharmacist to decide whether to approve a sale or to signpost a patient back to their GP or the oncology clinic. So I think within your scope of practice, if you feel confident, to me that doesn't seem unreasonable. But ultimately, it'll be the pharmacist's decision if they're selling a product to the patient. They should do all the checks to make sure that the you know it's a safe a safe product but you know drugs like paracetamol maybe cocodamol to an extent um are generally okay but it's it's drugs like ibuprofen that i really um you know worry about in oncology patients there's lots of risks to think about um that you know and patients come in on them and don't always tell you they're taking them and and they are you know they are obviously a, a big concern because patients do develop AKIs and sometimes GI bleeding and you think you know you can buy that over the counter in a supermarket you don't even have to see a pharmacist so I think we just need to raise more awareness as well and that's something I always ask patients when they come to clinic are you taking on steroid or do you take ibuprofen because patients get pain for all sorts of reasons and fever inflammation and you know they might seem quite innocent but they can do a lot of harm these drugs it's almost part of modern day culture isn't it in terms of if you have pain that you know do you take paracetamol ibuprofen some people would have been yeah. taking it for like a, a number of years let alone for when they specifically have cancer and then more serious pain so it must be really challenging because for some people they don't necessarily consider it as a drug it's kind of something that no. they've always taken yeah yeah because we do see a lot of patients with arthritis osteoarthritis like all the chronic conditions that you know it's it's becoming much more common common now i think and it's all i always think if you've got a contact with a patient there's always a good opportunity to ask them about the medication and their over-the-counter drug use as well and complementary therapies as well the, the number of inquiries we get increases every year we get lots of queries about whether patients can take vitamins minerals supplements and other herbal medicines and things that you've never heard of before so yeah, I think a lot of patients do self-medicate and don't always tell you unless you're very specific in how you question. Jo, you used a couple of terms earlier, so risk management, optimization. There's also another one, which is polypharmacy. Just for any patients listening, because I know we use these terms interchangeably in clinics. How would you explain them? So polypharmacy is defined differently by different organisations but generally one of the um, accepted terms is any patient who's taking five or more medications regardless of the conditions so we see more and more patients taking multiple drugs for lots of different conditions because patients are living longer um, we're treating older patients as well and it's not uncommon to see patients on 10 maybe 20 drugs coming to the oncology clinic and it's really challenging sometimes trying to manage that especially when you don't have the whole backstory to it you know if patients coming from a GP and they might be under multiple specialists and you don't have all those notes to hand and you've only got 20-25 minute consultations so it's just a case of making sure we do thorough drug histories 
with all of our patients and we asked if they've got any new medications that they've started since the last consultation. So polypharmacy is a huge challenge for the NHS, um, costs a lot of money as well and um, there's a lot of work going on around de-prescribing now, that's one of the big um, sort of incentives really trying to reduce prescribing not just from a cost point of view but also to reduce harm because we know the more medicines a patient takes that harm increases proportionally and also sustainability as well patients sometimes come you know come to clinic with bags of medication that they've stockpiled or when somebody's died for example and they have a clear out the house and there's you know bags and bags of of drugs so it's to try to help the, the planet as well and just be more environmentally friendly so there's lots of reasons why you know polypharmacy does need to be tackled because we don't want patients coming in and being admitted with adverse drug reactions or interactions that could have been you know potentially prevented there's a lot of um well, i guess what we call risk mitigation that we can do in clinics we try to reduce that risk for patients and optimize um, the use of medications by you know looking at the patient holistically you know going through the medications with them make sure that everything's still indicated you know is a re- check the reason why they're on that drug is it still needed do they still need to take the painkillers? Do they still need to take the blood pressure medication or the diabetic medication if they've lost weight, for example? Because obviously cancer can change patients' physiological condition, can't it? And people lose weight or, you know, the metabolism might change. So it's a real good opportunity to go through all the medication um, in a stepwise way and then just see if we can actually, re- you know, de-prescribe anything. Is it safe? Is it safe to do that? So... So yeah, we can try and reduce the risk and just talk about NSAIDs as well. They're they're the, the big issue and I think, you know, we get used to seeing them in different conditions, but in patients who are receiving chemotherapy, they can be really dangerous because a lot of the chemotherapy drugs we use are what we call renal toxic, so they can damage the kidneys, but also patients are at risk of infection with a lot of the chemotherapy drugs that we use. And obviously infection can lead to problems with the kidneys and by taking a drug like ibuprofen that can make the patient even more vulnerable so it's really important that you know we try to reduce risk risk from medications where possible especially if patients go to try and different treatments you know different treatment pathways first second third line options just trying to you know just foresee any future problems that can occur with those drugs and any interactions and work with the oncology team to try to um you know to try to make that risk less likely or even to prevent it completely if we can Can I ask, do you have much of a, of a role within, say, prehabilitation and rehabilitation of patients? Because just some of the things that you were talking about align really nicely with things like social prescribing, smoking, cessation, alcohol reduction. You know, is that something that, that you do or is it something that you think should be done, but obviously maybe due to time factors are difficult? Yeah, I'd hope I'd hope so. So there's been a lot of work done at um, my trust um, by our supportive care consultant, Dr. Berman, who's um, you know worked with other clinicians as well to try to develop supportive oncology as a concept. So looking at um, all the different factors that you know are important to patients, like palliative care and end of life care. Um, you know, looking at rehab, prehab, curative treatment, intense, and all the different challenges that come with those. So we do actually have a physio on our team now who's, um, you know, looking at working with different patient groups and coming to our clinics, which is amazing. Um, but in terms of actual prehab, not so much because I tend, I feel like I meet the patient much later on in their journey, um, you know, rather than when they're being worked up in clinic, which is where the oncology pharmacist might 
meet the patients and in terms of rehab not so much but again I think there's a lot of work that pharmacists could do around that you know de-prescribing pain medications as patients come out of their treatment and the pain flares subsided um you know working with smoking cessation as well like you say um yeah and just making sure that all patient symptoms get recognized and managed optimally so I think particularly in Manchester there was a bit of a patchwork of services for patients who were maybe on survivorship pathway for example and we're not always sure where these patients fit and who's the best person to manage them so I think there's a lot pharmacists can do there and that's something that we might be able to take forward in the future once we've definitely you know done a little bit more work in terms of defining where our our role is but chronic pain is another one as well chronic pain rehab and there's lots of services that can work together there and again opioid reduction is a big thing at the moment so so yeah I think there's a lot of opportunities but at the moment my work is very much more focused on the the palliative care side and also the um the gynae side at the moment so we've done quite quite a bit of work there but yeah hopefully one day once we've got um, a service up and running more if patients finish their prescriptions because you've de-prescribed them and they've still got bottles at home can they bring them back and then can you resell them or do you have to destroy them so patients can bring back um, empty medication bottles and boxes or anything that's unused they can bring back to a pharmacy for safe disposal so they'll get incinerated. I think the sad thing is that we can't actually reuse medication so we're not allowed to legally. It's, um, it's not a pharmacy rule as such, it's more of a, a legality. So I think the theory behind it is that we don't know how the medicine's been stored in somebody's home and obviously we have to be quite strict about medication storage. We have to store drugs at certain temperatures, certain humidities because we know that drugs, some drugs are very susceptible. Drugs like aspirin can draw in water from the atmosphere and obviously that affects the shelf life. People might, you know, pop out medications into bottles. So we just, and obviously contamination as well. So we just can't, we can't be certain um, that that medication has been stored in the correct way and it's just not it's just not feasible so it's something that i know really upsets patients and healthcare staff alike especially when there's so many budget pressures in the nhs but unfortunately we just can't verify the safety and it's, it is a safety issue rather than anything else um i mean in the future who knows if medicine shortages whether the rules might change perhaps because sometimes we've taken in months and months with a stock that we know has you know hasn't been used and probably has been well looked after but I think at, at the moment it's it's a def, it's a definite no, but you know rules and regs can change um, depending on the situation, especially if it becomes an ongoing an ongoing issue. You mentioned about stock challenges. Why is that? I don't know. I think it's just it feels like it's got work like more of an issue in recent years. So whether it's a case of Brexit and border checks, imports are affected because we import unlicensed drugs as well from different parts of the world. Um, transport is obviously an issue so we've had issues with delays in customs and shortages of lorry drivers for example sometimes it can just be a shortage of the raw ingredient it can be that simple other times it's logistics or factory fires you know any, anything that can affect workforce as well so you don't always find out that's that's a problem so often we just get notified of, of a drug shortage at the last at the last possible minute and it can be quite difficult trying to find a solution to that but we often don't get notice and we don't we rarely find out you know what the actual cause is but definitely with the imports I think there is probably something to do with um you know Brexit and paperwork for sure. You mentioned Joe that um 
that you um, were involved in some projects as part of multidisciplinary teams. Can you tell us about some of those? Yeah, sure. So um, so we've had a, some of the projects we've just had um, ongoing for years and just haven't got around to doing them. But recently, one of the projects we're doing is with um, our therapeutic radiography team in the colorectal setting. So we're looking at using topical painkillers for patients who've had um, pelvic or rectal radiotherapy. So, you know, drugs like morphine, we can potentially mix it in with a carrier gel that's like a local anaesthetic, for example, to see if we can actually improve pain control. Because normally our first, our go-to would be to give patients a drug like morphine, a strong opioid, analgesic, or a drug like gabapentin or pregabalin to try and treat nerve pain that's often associated with the procedure. So by trying the topical solutions, the theory is that we might be able to reduce patients' um, opioid requirements or pregabalin requirements and potentially reduce their risk of side effects as well because we know opioids and pregabalin, for example, aren't ideal, especially in the long-term or the curative setting. So we thought if we do try um, you know, the gel and see if patients actually like it and benefit from it, we might be able to reduce um, you know, our tablet burden as well for patients. That's a clinical effectiveness study that we've got going on at the moment and um, our radiographers are actually collating the data. So they're selecting patients in quite a controlled manner. So we have an um, inclusion exclusion criteria and then they're reviewing the patients weekly and issuing the prescriptions um, you know, if the patients are actually finding it helpful. So they get a very close monitoring, but it's not a clinical trial. It's what they call a clinical effectiveness study where it's an established treatment but we're actually trying to use it in a very controlled way to see if we actually can make a difference for patients um, there's lots of other in- interesting projects so hopefully we're doing something around pharmacogenomics at some point so that's um, you know a big huge um, piece of work that NHS England do at the moment so there's lots of um, interesting pharmacogenomics it's really exciting it's already well established in many of the cancer disease groups but in supportive care, I don't think there was a huge amount of work going on, but it'd be, you know, be re- be really amazing to find out, you know, patients metabolise certain drugs better than others, and if they're more liable for side effects, and then we can target treatments appropriately for them and make sure they get the best medicine for their condition, or one that's not going to cause them harm. So we're hoping to do some work along along that at some point in the future with our um, local pharmacogenomics pharmacy lead. Um, other projects that we've got going on at the moment we're doing chemotherapy induced nausea and vomiting projects so we're having a look at our rates of nausea and vomiting in different disease groups and trying to find out our rates of admission if we're doing a good job and there's a lot of interest in a drug called olanzapine for um, chemotherapy induced nausea and vomiting and other indications so we're just trying to explore more about the role of olanzapine and whether it's being used appropriately in the right setting and according to our local guidelines and then we're looking at a drug called oxaloplatin, um, which is quite commonly used in the colorectal cancer setting. So we're looking to see whether that causes neurotoxicity in different settings compared to our um, you know, other standard of care. So that's something that we're doing with the um, oncology team. So it's quite nice that we've got students to help us with data collection because I always find that in practice you've got all these ideas for projects, but you can't actually do them without having a student who can you know spend the time going through the patients and making sure that we get the right data so that's always what I find the late the rate limiting step um, for projects but there's quite a few we're doing some NSAID safety work as well so we're looking at um, trying to reduce the risk of AKIs in patients who are taking non-steroidals like ibuprofen which we've already mentioned 
um, and others. So yeah, there's a few, there's quite a few projects. We're looking at um, working with our gynae CNS in palliative care, who's doing an audit at the moment, looking at um, anti-secretive medications for patients who have metastatic bowel obstructions. So we've just introduced um, a drug called lamiotide into the trust for eligible patients to try to reduce secretions. And now we're looking at whether we're actually making a difference when we use these anti-secretive drugs and um, you know, patients do get a better quality of life when they're on them. So there's quite a few things in the pipeline, but we haven't actually got any hard data yet. Sounds really busy. I like the way you go, oh, we've got a few little things, but even <laughs> some few, of those projects you yeah. outlined, they sound big projects. Yeah, and then people say, oh, have you read this paper on a lansipine? It could be used for this or this. And then it's like, right, I'll add that onto my list of things that we can maybe do at some point. So, so yeah, hopefully once we get, um, you know, more pharmacy staff on board and, you know, anyone else who's got an interest as well, because I think it's quite nice to do collaborative projects as well. I think if you just do them in-house and you don't involve other professions it can you sometimes miss the mark a little bit or you miss opportunities so it's quite nice if you can collaborate with the MDT as well so it's quite quite nice to have the option if it's um, available but everyone's busy it's quite difficult at the moment trying to get projects uh, to completion isn't it off the ground so I've got a difficult question for you it might be easy for you to answer but um, around supportive <laughs> care so <laughs> patients coming towards the end of life how do you manage the expectations around prescribing different things or de-prescribing you know if you know that something is going to work something isn't going to work and then family expectations I think it's just about being open and honest about um you know what the likely course of the disease is going to be what the problematic symptoms might be so I suppose around anticipating medications for example just being very clear about what anticipatory means and what the drugs are used for because sometimes we have concern I think sort of in the current era we're in post shipman and um, Gosports we have to be really careful about governance and making sure patients understand and families understand about you know why we want to maybe want to use morphine for example in certain situations so I think communication is really really key and also treating the patient as an individual so for some people, they might want to continue certain drugs until the end of life, if possible, but other patients might be quite on board, especially if a drug's causing discomfort. You know, for example, an anticoagulant that's given by an injection, you know, is, is it worth continuing and having that discussion with the patient, but also making sure the multidisciplinary team are on board with that as well. So I think it's really important to take the patient and their family's um, preference into account because ultimately it's about them and their care, isn't it? So think we've just got to tread very carefully but make sure that everybody's kept in the loop and you know we're trying to make comfort the priority especially if it's in the last days of life and not requesting invasive blood tests for patients who are on certain drugs as well and yeah just making sure we have a clear plan plan in the notes and we try and preempt symptoms as well so we know what we'd use in a given situation if a patient was breathless or if a patient had seizures but just knowing what the next step is, just always thinking ahead, do we have this drug available to us? What dose would we go in with? So that if it does, if things do change, we can quickly react to that and, you know, be responsive. Jo, there was lots of excitement on social media when you got this post um, because it, it isn't available in every single trust. No. Why do you think it's so important that there is a you in all of the oncology departments in the country? So I suppose it's quite, I guess maybe my post is more unusual that I've 
done both, I've been both an oncology pharmacist and a palliative care pharmacist. Um, so I suppose it's like seeing both sides of things as well. And it's really important that the two specialities work together really closely right from the start. But also the oncology treatments are getting more and more complex. So I think what I found from joining the team full time is that they really appreciate and value that, that knowledge, you know, what the drug's for, what the likely outcomes or benefits would be. Drug interactions are huge. Um, you know, a lot of the oral medications that we use interact through common metabolic pathways, and that can be quite challenging trying to, you know, like say mitigate the risk or reduce the risk of any um, harm occurring for that patient. So there's a lot of education that we can do to try and, um, I suppose, educate the multidisciplinary team as well, the CNS as a consultant, the doctors who work in the supportive care setting um, to make sure that they're all familiar with the drugs and any of the concerns that we might have with some of the medicines that we use in supportive care. So drug interactions, adverse effects is huge at the moment. And um, yeah, I suppose that's one of the, the, the key things, really manage, managing that and just sort of you know, making sure the two line up and they're on the same page. Um, so just around kind of equality, diversity and inclusion when it comes to mm -hmm. prescribing. So some yeah. people from different backgrounds and cultures can't have specific medications because of the way it's bound. How do you manage that with kind of expectations as well? So in general, I find most, most patients will just go, you know, will go what's recommended because I suppose we do have more limited choices in the hospital because we only have a very limited formulary and we can't order in every drug for patients but we do try and offer patients a choice so for example if somebody doesn't want to have um a drug like morphine that's got alcohol in some formulations then we can you know we can offer the patient an alcohol-free formulation so again it's just trying to understand the patient's perspective just having a broad idea of you know with different cultures what's acceptable to them what's not obviously we know that jehovah witnesses um, don't necessarily want blood products and you know many medicines are derived from poor sign from pork or beef products so you know a lot of our injections like molecular heparin some of them are derived from you know poor sign proteins so we just have to be very careful and there was a really good resource actually I don't know if it's still available but when I used to be a medicines information pharmacist it was brilliant it's just a huge catalogue of all the drugs and you know what the alternatives would be for certain situations where patients can't have a drug for cultural, religious or dietary reasons. So that was really useful. Actually, I do need to check if that's still available, but that was a you know, really useful resource. And then just speaking to colleagues as well, you know, just finding out a little bit more, especially when it comes to Ramadan, for example, you know, again, managing patients who have got diabetes and might be fasting, but are on um, you know, anti-cancer treatments, what the best way to, you know, to approach that is and if there's anything else that we need to be aware of, because I guess you can read all the leaflets and emails that come round about um, you know religious festivals but if you've got colleagues that can you know educate you as well I think that's probably the best way really they can often shed a lot of light and explain you know some of the intricacies that you might might not always be you know freely available but I always try and give patients a choice where possible and and if there's not an, op an alternative try to explain um you know why that's the case and you know ultimately it's, it's up to them to make that choice about their health care but we do we do try to um you know cater to to our needs. Joe, can I ask, with my education hat on, obviously um, lots of pre-registration students who are working within oncology may learn lots about SACT and potentially, you know, specifics around some of the chemotherapy drugs 
um, you know, the side effects and things like that. But it is such a rapidly changing field. How would you advise people to continue with learning about what is currently being utilised? I'm just thinking about, you know, specifically for therapeutic radiographers, you know, we, we definitely know about the radiotherapy and the changes that are happening within that field, but we are also supporting our patients sometimes with adjuvant treatments. Um, and so it is really important that we do know, but sometimes I feel that actually maintaining our knowledge can be really difficult. What advice would you give? Absolutely. Um, things change so fast. I think oncology is probably one of the most change, well, rapidly changing um, specialities, isn't it? I mean, I've only been out of colorectal cancer for about eight months and I feel like I've forgotten a lot and then I hear from my colleague who's uh, taken over my role that you know xy drugs been commissioned and and it's like right okay so I think I think it's always worth um you know if people have got time spending time with oncology pharmacists I'm always happy to train people you know have people shadow me in clinic um so, you know it's a really good way of finding out a bit more about the drugs and find out about your local protocols as well is really key it's like you can signpost people to websites but you know, it's really important to find out locally what you do because the treatment regimens might vary between different hospitals and different countries. So, and our local practice very much, our, our experience with our group of patients very much dictates our treatment protocol. So we might adapt slightly according to our local population. So I would definitely say speak to your oncology pharmacist if you can. Um, yeah, spend time with us either on the ward or in the clinics, um, have a look at our protocols, come to a teaching session. Because often we have the pharmacy, we do teaching sessions every week or we get drug reps to come in or different specialists to come in and give talks. Um, I think that's probably the best way when you're busy. It's, there's only so much reading you can do and I think it's quite nice to do it in person or you know, with somebody who's, I guess, clued up and has all the, the most recent knowledge. So, um, but I think multi-professional learning is the way forward. We've been involved with some of the Christie where we've been um, doing like online training with um, a huge cohort of nursing students across the Northwest and we've been getting, I think radiographers have been joining in as well. And we've just been doing different talks on different days about drugs and, you know, what, you know, what they need to, what students need to know about SAT and drug interactions, drug charts. We sort of cover everything. We just had such good feedback about it. Um, but yeah, signposting as well, just, just ask, ask the farms team, you know, what the best resources are. We often subscribe to um, certain references, which are really useful, but also there's other websites which signpost to like about herbal medicines, which are, you know, amazing and obviously peer reviewed as well. So yeah, I definitely say try and get to know some of the pharmacists in your trust and um, yeah, get their advice really and find out the best way to, to get the most up to date learning. Just to tag on to that up-to-date learning, I'm sure there might be some patients wondering that when they go to different hospitals, why is it that some drugs are available at one hospital but not another? I suppose an example is like antacid oxetacaine. In my current trust, mm -hmm. we don't offer it for oncology patients or like esophageal patients, but where I used to work before, it was quite readily offered. I think a lot of it comes down to historical stocks. So if a, if a drug's been in stock in a pharmacy for 20 years, it's probably not going to get appraised unless there's an issue with it. So it'll just be available routinely. And then we obviously have our own um, in-house formularies, which um, is usually an electronic catalogue of the drugs that are stocked in pharmacy, what indications they're available for and when they can be used. 
and it's very much guided really by pharmacy and the oncology teams to what their preference would be so they will very much shape the formulary so you're right it does it does vary and it doesn't seem very equitable so i know that you know even in manchester it varies a lot um across greater manchester and patients may be going to one christie site um somewhere might not get the same drug at a different one but that's why it's really important to have drugs and therapeutics committees so we can try to rationalize what we stock make sure it's evidence-based you know nice approved where you know nice for praise to drug or at least there's some sort of evidence base behind it but you're right there's a lot of historical prescribing and um yeah it's, it's difficult to explain really other than we've always done it and it works but yeah antacinox oxytecane we do we do use that on occasion at christie and it's um you know we do get some good results with it for the right patients so joe we're coming towards the end of the podcast before I ask you for some top tips, just have one question. Is there part of a pharmacology, pharmacy degree where you learn how to say every single name of a drug properly? Um, I don't think there is, no. I think it's sort of like learning a language, isn't it? You just um, pick it up as you go along. And there's still drugs that I can't pronounce. I mean, some of the oncology drugs are unpronounceable. And, you know, even the pharmacists are like, what is this? So, um, so yeah, for it's quite funny hearing people pronouncing drug names as well. Sometimes you hear all sorts on the in the clinic and on the wards, like meprazolis and lanzarotis for lanzoprazole, and yeah, you hear you hear it all. But we don't, yeah, we don't really get we don't really get taught. I think we just pick it up and then um, you do your pharmacology exams, and I think that's where it tends to make sense. And it's just doing it every day in practice. It just becomes second nature, like anything, doesn't it? All the technical terms. But yeah, we have to be careful with patients because I think sometimes we do sort of talk at them and they might not always um you know know what we talk, what we're talking about so i think particularly in trials as well we have acronyms that makes it even more confusing thank you and what what top tips do you have for any of our listeners so i suppose um speak to your pharmacist if you want any advice about anything medicines related um, and most pharmacists i think well all the pharmacists that i know are quite happy to train love being asked questions because I think people always think when you're working on the inpatient world particularly while sort of walking around with a computer um looking very important and no one actually knows what we do so I always like it when people say oh are you a pharmacist or what you know what do you do or can I come and shadow you for a session so we do take a lot of the NMPs the training NMPs up to the wards and to clinics just to go over prescribing issues and you know looking at drug interactions and any issues with medicines so always happy to be approached and i'm sure pretty much all pharmacists would be happy to as well um because yeah just enjoy training and educating people as well and making them understand you know what our role is and what we're actually doing in the background because i don't think i think people only think about the dispensing when they think about pharmacists even in the oncology setting um and then just know your resources as well if you're prescribing i guess just have your base resources that you know are reputable so obviously the bnf is useful um emc website but there's some other good websites for specific conditions like herbal medicines for example is one that patients often want to know about so the memorial sloan kettering website is brilliant and you get patient and care information on there as well and it sort of talks about risks and benefits and potential drug interactions so i think that's really useful when patients come in and they may be on cannabis oil or they're taking all sorts of supplements so definitely ask your pharmacy team as well about you know which resources you can refer to as well um and i guess in terms of 
the dispensary we always get complaints about how long things take to process but I suppose they're just um, a frontline service that are serving a lot of patients and they're under a lot of pressure and I think they do the best um, in difficult circumstances so it's just be patient and also we, we try and offer patients the option to post medications out where we can so just to save them having to wait because I know it's a long day for people when they've had maybe bloods in the morning clinic and then pharmacy so you know is an alternative that can be offered you know beyond waiting so I'm sure most pharmacy teams would always try to accommodate patients preferences where possible um, and understand that they have you know regular appointments and it's a long day for them so just ask if there's anything just ask brilliant thank you very much um, it's a really insightful and lots of interesting t- topics that you've covered I think I think be a lot of people who take a lot of value from this episode so yeah thank you very much for coming on Thank you all for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been Namanjil Grandison and Joe McNamara. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, please consider the reflective questions posted, along with the links to resources and literature we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. So, our next guest to feature will be Daniel Lumley, who will be discussing his role as the Director of Clinical Operations at Amethyst Radiotherapy UK. Thank you for listening and take care.